LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com That's legalize-freedom.com and you can spell legalize with an S or a Z. Also on facebook.com forward slash legalizefreedom. The YouTube channel is legalizefreedom1. On Twitter, it's at legalizefreedom. If you'd like to make a donation to keep the wheels turning at legalizefreedom.com, you'll find a donate tab and also a buy me a coffee button in the bottom right hand corner. In the meantime, I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Brian Keating who joins us to discuss the role of imagination and creativity in shaping the world around us and our future. As perhaps the most curious species on Earth, from the very beginning we have been driven to probe the mysteries of our planet, uncover its inner workings and use this knowledge for our benefit. From this quest grew the many branches of human knowledge and expression, including science, religion and art. But the commercialization of science and art and the marginalization of spirituality has led to a myopic, materialistic view of what can and what should be done in wider society, a situation exacerbated by the mainstream education system which churns out specialists or drone workers, often for jobs that are rapidly disappearing or already gone. More than ever, there is now an urgent need to reinvigorate imagination and creativity from the ground up, dissolving the artificial barriers between fields of study, branches of knowledge and modes of thinking. The extent to which this can or will be achieved will have an enormous impact on how we face and attempt to deal with the huge political, social, economic and environmental challenges facing humanity. Endless human progress is by no means guaranteed and if we are to overcome our most pressing problems, we will need to test the limits of our imagination and of the possible like never before. Hello and welcome Brian and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Ah, it's a pleasure to be back with you Greg. Now Brian, today we're going to be talking in general terms, I think I would sum it up, the role of imagination and creativity in shaping the world around us and also the future uh, that lies ahead of us, um, not just in the context of science, but in you know wider society. This will overlap a great deal with your work at the Arthur C. Clarke Centre for Human Imagination, uh, which you can tell us more about in a minute. And this talk today, uh, a good preamble for that or a good primer for that would be our previous interview, uh, which was entitled Cosmos and Controversy, Science and the Big Questions. Uh, listeners can find that, of course, at LegalizeFreedom.com. 
So before we dive into our chat, just tell us again a little bit about the Arthur C. Clarke Centre for Human Imagination and kick us off with an opening thought on the role of imagination and creativity. Yeah, so I've been fascinated with, um, as I say, three different types of Big Bangs in my life. Uh, the first one being the actual Big Bang, or what we call the Big Bang, which is how did a universe come from nothing, perhaps, uh, or perhaps maybe it came from something before our current observable universe. So that's the typically what people think about as the Big Bang. Then there's the question of how did life emerge from pure chemicals in the classic Big Bang scenario of Hubble and Einstein and Lemaitre and, and folks we talked about last last time. The universe fuses into helium from hydrogen atoms, and those hydrogen uh, nuclei become helium, and then helium eventually powers a star, which in some cases can then build up more and more of the heavier elements. This is a process discovered by uh, two of my colleagues here at UCSD, Jeff and Margaret Burbage, in the 1950s, uh, the process by which stars make almost all the elements that matter, almost all the matter that matters. And then there's a question of how life came about from non-living chemicals. How do you get uh, living bacteria from, uh, from, for example, a soup that originally started off as pure hydrogen? That's a type of Big Bang, life from non-life, universe from non-universe. And then lastly, how does that life go from bach to bacteria, or if you like, from you know rocks to Rachmaninoff, whatever classical composers you like, how do we get conscious from something that is innately unconscious or non-sentient beings? So those are the fascinating questions that have always perplexed me and that only one of which I get to study and get paid for, namely the Big Bang, which is the origin of the universe, which my telescopes built with my colleagues around the world on all seven continents have the ability to build and hopefully shed light upon, no pun intended. But the question of consciousness and life emergence has always fascinated me. So I sort of helped to start an initiative back in 2012 with some colleagues from UC San Diego, namely Dr. Um, Dr. Eric Veery and Dr. Sheldon Brown and, uh, and Patrick Coleman at UC San Diego and, and many others. And since that time, it's really blossomed into really satisfy those other two curiosities that I've had all my life, which is this origin of life from non-life and then consciousness from non-consciousness. And in so doing, we touch upon really everything that you could possibly imagine from the origin of life on other planets, perhaps. Uh, to the origin of consciousness and imagination within human beings on Earth. And most uh, particularly of interest to me is whether or not you can teach people to develop their imagination. Or is it somehow innate and frozen and fixed? I'm of the opinion that it can be taught, and I'm trying to apply the lessons of pedagogy from my other fields of endeavor, namely as a professor of astrophysics and cosmology, to this other question of whether or not in imagination and creativity can be taught. Yes, well, as, rather than addressing any of those big questions, which we somewhat touched upon in our previous interview, um, as I mentioned already, we're really going to be talking about how we think, the process of thinking, and how that can be developed and modified. And this really speaks to this question uh, that you've thought about often. You know, what makes us curious in the first place? Curiosity overlapping with imagination and creativity in ways which, um, if not already obvious, then listeners will find out. And because we seem to be the most curious of creatures on this planet, many forms of life, uh, even life with some degree of intelligence, appear quite happy to sort of just feed, mate, sleep, repeat, 
And mm-hmm. in a, some you know, of my colleagues too. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, we all, <laughs> we all know human beings like that. But what is that makes us curious? After all, it killed the cat. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we're not just talking about in science, but also in everyday life, because there seems to be this um, innate curiosity in us that uh, some of us uh, indulge and uh, we feel drawn to, compelled to indulge, uh, where you know, everything can be potentially interesting versus a sort of a lack of curiosity uh, that seems to inflict many people. There's the sensing the vibrancy and aliveness of the world around us and the wider cosmos versus a sort of a, you know, a joyless sort of cynicism, a, an emotionless kind of trudge through life that a lot of people appear caught in. And it seems that these, those two poles really, I know it's a spectrum in between, but those two poles kind of characterize human beings at their best and worst, it seems to me. Well, I think you're, you're right. And I like to think that curiosity is something that has to be, you know, really beaten out of somebody. <laughs> um, hopefully not physically, but, but maybe emotionally or intellectually as they go through, uh, the formal educational system. And I think that's a shame. And there have been a lot of people that have, have studied this in particular. My friend Mario Olivio, who's actually an astrophysicist, but he writes books about mathematics and curiosity and, uh, scientific sociology almost. And he really has studied this in great detail and, and came and did a, a program with us at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. And what we discovered in this, uh, in this, you know, meeting of the minds when he visited us as a scholar in residence was, you know, whether or not this can be taught and curiosity can be, uh, manipulated in a positive sense, shall we say, in order to preserve the, the childlike enthusiasm. Who among us does not know a child who's delighted at seeing something that piques his or her curiosity? Uh, who among us has not seen a child playing with an animal and realizing that the animal might get bored of the child way before the child would get bored of the animal because it's so, it's so delicious and delightful to that young, young soul. And so it really shows us, I heard a statistic once that, you know, a five-year-old kid will laugh or smile like something like three or four hundred times a day. And in a, and a grown adult 30, 40 years later, like listeners out there, they might only laugh once, twice, three times a day. And so this kind of delight, this mechanism of being perhaps jaded through the formal educational system and through, uh, through not really being impelled and stimulated to encourage curiosity as a subject. And I've come to the conclusion that I think curiosity needs to be taught and and it can be taught, and there are ways I hope we'll get into later on how you can educate young children. I do believe you're right. Most men, as Thoreau said, leave lives of quiet desperation. And so it might be too late when people are post-college and, and what have you. But I get blessed the blessing of spending time with college kids every day, and I see their curiosity, and I see that they're interested in the big questions. And it's only really after their education ends and they're forced to, quote unquote, make it in the real world that they stop asking these questions. Maybe they stop smiling as much, too. And I want to link those two attributes together, joy and the pleasure of learning and finding things out and um, and the childlike wonderment that every single human being has. And it's the most human of emotions. Curious, what makes us human? Well, you mentioned uh, Thoreau and his um quote there uh, involving the phrase quiet desperation and i don't know if pink floyd were quoting him when <laughs> in, in in their song time uh, they sing mm. they sing about hanging on in quiet desperation and that reminds me the other link i'm making here is with pink floyd's album the wall uh, mm-hmm. a, a, 
big part of the character's life in that rock opera hinges on his early education. Yeah. And right. of course, the teachers in the education system that are beating, as you say, not physically anymore, one would hope, beating the curiosity out of kids and pushing them through this meat grinder of rote learning are the, the victims themselves as well. And they perpetuate that, you know, the sins of the father and the rest of it. And it's definitely the education system does have a lot um, to answer for. I went to uh, a well-funded school with many good teachers, but there were hard limits um, in most classes on where you could go. And even if it was just at the time, we've got 35 minutes on Latin and a bell rings. We've got 35 <laughs> minutes of IT and then a bell rings. We just don't have time to mm. go to go where we, we want to go. And then it's it's all about, especially these days, about results. And of course, particularly in the US, it's about finance, you know, the college system and what have you. And it all seems to be somewhere down the list, quite close mm -hmm. to the bottom, is actually is learning, is information, is the joy of, of curiosity and exploration and discovering the world and and what you could be and what would might be possible. And it's really, it's like a sort of circling the drain in many ways, uh, the education yeah. system. So I don't want to get into like a lot of cliched bashing of um, the school system or whatever, but it is a part, along, along with the world we've made, you know, the society we've built and how that functions in a, in a very similar pattern, a sort of a holding pattern, race to the bottom type thing, you know, the, the lowest common denominator. There is a lot of that in, in education as there is in in you know, then this society we made, you know, the commercial capitalist world of work. Yeah. So, of course, you must be familiar with uh, your fellow countryman, Sir Ken Robinson's very famous, uh, most famous TED Talk in history. I think uh, it's got 62 million views. I'm just uh, talk looking right now. <clears throat> and so the tagline on on the TED website is Sir Ken Robinson makes an entertaining and profoundly moving case for creating an education, education system that nurtures rather than undermines creativity. And in that video, which uh, if you haven't seen, your listeners haven't seen right after they watch my TED talk, uh, they should watch his, you know, I've got the, I've got the uh, logarithm of the number of views that he has, unfortunately, but maybe someday that'll pick up. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what he talks about in that, in that uh, short video is this um, really this, as he calls it, undermining, I would say it's almost sabotaging creativity. What they're doing is they're using an 18th century model of education where you're you're training people for the industrial work, workforce. It really started off in the UK. And uh, other systems, because the British were so influential, it spread to America eventually and, and to the greater European continent. And, you know, some cultures have avoided it. And they do have much more kind of stimulation, encouragement of curiosity. And curiosity is, you know, is just one, one step removed from creativity. And I think you really have to see this dual mission that we have as educators, which we, you know, there is a need to have people that have professions, but there's also a need to kind of encourage the thing that, that professions are guaranteed or should be guarantees for. In other words, the things that protect us, defend us, uh, build societies, build technology. That's to protect and build and defend culture. And the culture should be founded on curiosity and creativity. And that's what makes us uniquely human. You know, you don't see many great works of, of art coming from our li closest living relatives, bonobos and chimpanzees, at least that we can discern. And so, uh, what makes us uniquely different should be celebrated. And this, and this, you know, people say diversity is our strength. Well, we're so different from other animals that I think that a lot of my mission is to really encourage people to see science, technology, engineering, and math as a branch of culture. 
And that might sound weird to you and your listeners, but it really is a form of culture. There's every bit as much creativity, beauty, elegance, and, and parsimony in the works of Einstein, in the works of Isaac Newton, in the works of, of the greatest mathematicians, logicians, and, and certainly in engineering, when we see structures that mimic Mother Nature herself so rich in beauty. And to not really teach science as a cultural activity and teach it separate from the arts, I think that's part of the some of the original sin that traces back, as I said, to this 18th century train for trade uh, uh, pedagogy that really needs to be done away with. Uh, well, if you look at the uh, the you know the early developmental phase, you know the, the, the scientific revolution and the sort of uh, you know gentlemen of independent means who who. Uh, started doing the, the, the science that is still recognizable to us today. They, because they weren't quote unquote professionals, um, you know, they were just keen amateurs, uh, you know, making mistakes along the way, but also important discoveries. Uh, you know, they had other lives as, um, you know, sometimes they were religious people. Um, they had spiritual dimensions. They were artists. Maybe they were businessmen. You know, maybe they were politicians. Uh, mm-hmm. As part of their day job, so a lot of the science that we we recognise today and it came it was a very human endeavour, you know, and creativity that an artist would recognise was employed in the pioneering discoveries and in the theorising and the ideas. Ironically enough, it's a, an increasing scientific tendency tendency to compartmentalise and dissect things that I think, in a way, led a lot of science itself to be cut off from some of the rest of human endeavour. That's right. You know, the separation. Um, that, that you see in, and say scientific means is part practical because it takes a long time to learn how to be an experimental physicist. And, um, and if you don't learn that, you can't actually practice the trade of being a professional, uh, professional scientist. But I think, um, if you, if you look at beyond the practical means of, of seeing science, technology, engineering, and math, the so-called STEM fields, seeing it as a, as merely a profession, I think does disservice to it. You know, everyone always asks me when I talk about I, the fact that I study something that has utterly zero practical application. You know, the actual day job that I get paid to do is studying the origin of the universe and whether or not it began with a bang and will end with a whimper. But on the other hand, what impels me to do that may not be technologically based, but I think just as someone can look at a Rembrandt painting and say, what can it do? It does nothing. It doesn't, you know, heat your house unless you burn it. It doesn't, you know, uh, it doesn't do anything unless you, unless you destroy it or mine it and somehow extract value from it by selling it. So just looking at it does, but it obviously no one would turn it down and, and people look at it and they get derived the greatest, deepest, uh, cause it touches something in us. And I think the fact that we don't teach methodologically correct approach to um, looking at imagination and encouraging imagination, curiosity, and seeing it as bounded to the classroom, I think that that's a big mistake. And, and I've tried to adopt that with my own children. And, and really this, this kind of, um, you know, really approach has come to me, uh, in part from a quote by Robert Heinlein, who wrote, you know, Stranger in a Strange Land. And if you'll permit me, I'll read this quote. He said, a human being should be able to des- change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, <clears throat> build, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders. And then he goes on and on and on. Um, but eventually he goes, uh, he says, um, specialization is for insects. 
And I look at a lot of my colleagues, I won't name names, but but they do specialize so much. And then what they do is phenomenal and they're so bright and they're so good at what they do. But do they ever step back to that kind of college or high school or even elementary school level of curiosity when they would look up at the sky and really wonder where did it all come from? And not for any practical means whatsoever. As I say, I get paid for it, but you know, the number of professional cosmologists are, you know, smaller than the number of f- professional football players. And that's either American football or European football. So I think this notion that we have to compartmentalize and only specialize, I think, again, that's owing to a flaw in the educational system that needs to be rectified. And there are some school systems that approach things differently in the Montessori system. Um, there's, uh, there are other educational systems, uh, that we, uh, that we have approached in the U.S. that, that do have less formal and, and rigid forms of educational, uh, but, uh, pr- uh pr- you know, content, but they don't extract, you know, the, the, the curiosity and passion out of the kids at a young age because once it's gone, it's very difficult to replace it, so to speak. Well, there, there is a, a bias against, from some quarters, science that isn't can't be monetized or used for commercial um, mm-hmm. gain, as it were. That's or perhaps to turn it around. That's the science that seems to be seen as the most important. Uh, how can we use this to make a new product or service mm-hmm. um, or whatever? How can this be monetized? It's got to pay for itself, as it were. That's the idea. And yeah. of course, that mirrors wider society, where you know do we just have to pay just to simply exist on the planet. Uh, you mentioned in the context of educational system a few moments ago about this training in centuries gone by for it to become part of an industrial workforce and how that has kind of gone away for all sorts of reasons. Well, we particularly now are facing all sorts of systemic challenges for, you know, resource depletion, energy, supply problems, environmental issues. So more than ever, and people are looking to science to help solve some of the problems that we're currently facing, some of which look like getting much worse in the future. And it's into this arena that the imagination and creativity that we've been talking about can best service, I think. And I'm going to raise the, an, another um, word that you'll be familiar with is impossible or, you know, <laughs> the question of what is possible. I think that can absolutely be constrained or otherwise in terms of the creativity and imagination we can bring to, to science and just our thinking about, you know, where we're going as a species in general. I mean, the dictionary definition of impossible, for example, simply states that something that is not able to occur, exist, or be done. And that's fine. But so much of what we think is not able to occur, exist, or be done is based on the past and also based on certain beliefs informed by that. Now, of course, there are hard limits that we discover all the time. Uh, Scientists are at the cutting edge of that. But also, and I think this is paraphrasing Arthur C. Clarke here, to test the limits of the possible, we have to sort of have to enter into the twilight zone of the impossible. As yeah. it were, uh, you know, so when people say it's impossible, that's based on assumptions. <laughs> and are, how many of those are, are, are actually imposed by nature uh, versus those imposed by our own imagination or lack of? Yeah, that's very fascinating that you mentioned that. So um, thanks for the plug, intentional or not. But our podcast, 
as part of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego, is called Into the Impossible, based on the exact quote that you mentioned. The only way to discover the limits of the possible is to go beyond them, into the impossible. And uh, Sir Clark said that uh, many years ago, and I think we've applied that, and there are many episodes I refer your listeners to. Uh, in particular, there's one called The Second Kind of Impossible with my friend, uh, who's the Einstein Professor of Science at Princeton University. His name is Paul Steinhardt, and he has a wonderful book uh, called The Second Kind of Impossible, and that's where we got the name for this podcast episode. Uh, and we have a video channel on YouTube where you can catch most of these episodes as well, including the one with Mario Livio. And this episode is exactly what you're saying. It's exactly about what, what he calls a second kind of impossible. There are things that are impossible. You know, you can say you could spend a lot of time looking at, you know, the equation two plus two and see if you could ever get four from it. And I heard a joke, you know, that's true that two plus two or ne- not get four when you add two plus two. But I saw, you know, someone said had a T-shirt the, on the talk I gave the other night. So two plus two equals five uh, for large values of two. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of a tongue in cheek way of saying that it really is impossible. That's a first kind of impossible, theoretically, fundamentally forbidden by the laws of nature. Then there are parts of nature that we don't understand, and so we may assume that they're impossible, uh, may be extremely difficult. And in the case of Professor Steinhardt, what he's done many times in his career is really overthrow the orthodoxy that prevailed in science, which is to say that something could not be otherwise. Uh, firstly, in his understanding of, of cosmic inflation, which is the epoch that you know uh, kicked off and preceded the hot Big Bang expansion of the universe that Hubble observed, and we talked about extensively last time. I won't get into it. And he made great contributions to that. And then he found that there are some flaws in that theory, and he came up with a different theory uh, that's, that suggests the universe is cyclical. Again, we probably discussed that. I don't remember, but but we can uh, listeners can go back and listen to that. It's a big part of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, uh, that story of this conflict. But his new book is about discovering a quasi-crystal, something that was decided upon by all the brightest minds of science to be impossible uh, to be ever found either synthetically or in nature. And not only did he predict how these things could behave to the astonishment of none other than Nobel laureate Richard Feynman, but he also, as he starts his book off with, he really thought that this thing was impossible, the first kind of impossible, until he really thought more deeply about it and realized through curious exploration and, and kind of this induction that he uses, incisively, you know, discursive curiosity that he uh, uh, displays better than almost any scientist that I know. And he came up with an idea that you could have a type of quasi-periodic, this means not repeating like a salt crystal that repeats orderly fashion, but really like a Penrose tiling in three dimensions. And Sir Roger Penrose, of course, is another friend, uh, we probably mentioned it as well, and he's given many lectures for us as well. Again, this type of discursive um, epistemic curiosity, wanting to find out what is possible or what is truly impossible. And there's probably a surprisingly small number of things that are truly impossible. And that's fine. That's the first kind of impossible. But what about all the stuff that's the second kind of impossible that we just don't know until we really explore it? And it takes the maverick intellects that are sadly not so common because of more prosaic things. Like it's very hard to get funding when you try to discover something that that 99% of your colleagues who are reviewing your proposals think is the first kind of impossible. So first you have to convince them to do that or you're not going to be able to put food on your table and no matter how curious you are, you first have to take care of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You must take care of your basic physiological safety and health. 
So I think we're beating out, you know, because it is so difficult to get to get funding to research things like this. Um, and the story that he tells in his book really is a fascinating detective story, sort of known as the Indiana Jones of physics. And to see that this is just but one example of where one man's curiosity coupled with with a maverick foresight really led as the byproduct of his curiosity to discovering something not only synthetically produced in the lab, but found, of all places, in outer space as well. Everything real begins as a thought. Um, again, I'm probably paraphrasing someone well-known with that. But <laughs> if we, t- if that is the case, then it's very, the sort of, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, the sort of thinking that we do, how we think, is really, really important. And I, I also... Uh, hark back to what I said about creativity in some of the great scientific discoveries of the past and that mm. these eureka moments and breakthroughs and paradigm shifts, many of them have occurred as a result of intuition, hunches, gut feelings, not sort of non-logical modes of thought. And by, by that, I do not mean illogical. It's two different things there, but just not following a strictly mechanistic scientific route way of doing things because it's, it is ironic that when so much of the of the scientific method that we that we methods that we still employ today are the result of creative thinking that they themselves should be, become some sort of straitjacket, you know. Because if we know mm-hmm. anything, if we know anything about human knowledge throughout the, the the millennia, is that you know we're part of a process here. This is an evolving thing, and any time that we think, and this happened in the Victorian era, did it not? Any time that we think that we more or less have all the answers in. You know, we find ourselves getting a sharp shock to the system, you know, a sharp lesson. And, you know, you're very wrong. Yeah. So I think, you know, people have to have a certain level of confidence in their own intellectual discursive curiosity to begin with. I think it takes somewhat of a maverick streak, but you also have to have some taste. And so I don't think it's true that you could put a toddler in front of a canvas with some paint and really get the same kind of, you know, byproduct that you can get from a person who actually has studied the masters of history and learned from from them the great artists of history and then applies their modernity i mean picasso could paint the masters but he also could come up with new and and completely innovative ways to paint and visualize the fourth dimension and and all sorts of wonderful things that he did and and there's a great book called picasso and einstein and that really shows again this theme of the two cultures really being the same part of the underlying culture, which should go by the rubric of curiosity or humanity, uh, which which is is really in my mind a solid fact that the science is a part of culture. Now, with with people who you know attempt to break the mold, that's wonderful. But to me, you know, I get a lot of letters, for example, emails that say, you know, Professor Keating, Einstein was wrong. I can prove it. Um, and, you know, and if we do it together, I'll, I'm gladly split, you know, some of my Nobel Prize winnings with you, not all of them, but, um, but, you know, here's why. But I never get an email that says, you know, uh, Professor Keating, you know, Ludwig Boltzmann was wrong. You know, it's always that they want to go after the very highest name, highest profile people, and that really attracts them as if they can somehow obtain all the level of fame or notoriety that someone like Einstein had uh, because they oh, they prove him wrong. That's very difficult to prove Einstein wrong. And in fact, professional scientists are trying to do it all the time, but that's really to reveal inaccuracies or improved precision of his understanding, not for the sheer sake of the notoriety that we would get from proving him wrong. And so I think, you know, the motivation for people has to be 
sort of uh, for the right reasons, for the sake of understanding the heavens. And to my opinion, there there is some of that, but I think uh, a lot of the case, sadly, for young people, it's very difficult to be original in physics because nowadays, especially in the age of internet and social media, if somebody comes out with an idea, it's necessarily tentative until it's been, uh, you know, data and, and observations have weighed in on it. So therefore, it's going to be speculative. Now, who amongst us can weather the sharp criticism and the slings and arrows that come along just from having a, you know, a broadsized presence in social media space? And now with a young person who she or he may not have a job, uh, that's permanent like me, um, at least, you know, in theory. And that person, you know, it takes a lot of courage. There are very few people that can do that. But sometimes the work that they do is really, uh, quite highly prized. Again, they then need to apply for funding because they don't even have a permanent job prospect yet, uh, and they may not be able to do it. So in science, it's very difficult. There's almost this, this enormous apparatus set up to continue the kind of incremental improvement of orthodox theories without uh, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of attention or funding paid to the very difficult to imagine succeeding, but creative and imaginative solutions that may be just what physics for example needs in order to progress forward and and make new and, and important new discoveries uh for the future well it may just be some of those important new discoveries that actually come along just at the right time to answer a really pressing need you know the sort of pressing needs that i spoke about earlier and maybe as as you know the years the next few years maybe next couple of decades whatever problems will become so pressing that that might free things up a little bit for young scientists or you know and or those with speculative ideas that just need work putting into them to see if there's anything there you know things mm-hmm. things that can directly um answer some some problems that that we're facing because a lot of people still feel you know when i said earlier about the science that's most prioritized is that which can be commercialized and even with commercial products a lot of people don't understand or know anything about the science <laughs> the science behind all the stuff that's in their home for example but hopefully that can make not just commercially, but make some of the, the, the more speculative or cutting edge or fringe scientific work more viable in the sense, well, okay, well, you've been working away on this pet theory of yours. Actually, we really need to find out if this has got legs, you know, so we're going to pile into this. So I hope in future that that will, that will free things up a little bit, just allow a bit more creativity to flow. Yeah. I agree uh, completely. I think it's important to have a sense of taste in the sense that, you know, we can understand that, that uh, necessarily when the new theory comes out, it's, it's tentative. But on the same token, if you recognize that the person, you know, the question comes up all the time when I'm reviewing a proposal, you know, what is this person's track record? Are they proposing something completely outside their scope of ability, but is possible from somebody who is more talented? Is it commensurate with what they're capable of doing? Et cetera, et cetera. And I, I tend to look at them and I apply this principle that I learned from Ray Dalio, who's a famous hedge fund manager. You know, he's basically like, who, you should listen to experts, but how do you determine who's an expert? It's someone who's been successful in at least three times in his or her life, meaning, you know, that they've created something, built a business, a hedge fund, or made a good trade or, or whatever three times, or come up with, you know, a good idea, a good analysis, something solid beyond, you know, everyone has to do their PhD thesis and then one or two things beyond that. I can look at that and say, is the credibility commensurate with the proposal? And I think you, we should really try to encourage that. And we have very small grants, you know, that we give out, you know, to young students here at UC San Diego. And, and part of it is to encourage how they are approaching 
the simulation of, say, new modalities of commerce, for example, or what San Diego will look like in 30 years, or, you know, many other uh, different aspects that can apply the prospects of of great change and great benefit and innovation, but are at least grounded and on solid footing through the candidate's previous searches. Now, we're just a small institute, you know, privately uh, endowed institution at a public university. So we don't we don't have huge amounts. But I read, you know, a very depressing study, you know, today, in fact, about, you know, alternatives to this dominant theory of cosmogenesis, which is inflation, and how pitifully underfunded they are in the United States by public funding agencies such as the National Science Foundation. So this high risk, high reward is true. As I pointed out in my book, you know, some of the grace discoveries have come completely out of the blue. So in contrast to the eureka moment that you mentioned a couple minutes ago, you know, as Isaac Asimov said, you know, the archetypical reaction should not be eureka, but it should be, that's really weird. What, why did I find that? I, I spoke the other night with the, one of the co-discoverers of dark energy, uh, Professor Alex Filipenko of the University of California at Berkeley, and he and I were at the SETI Institute, and we were talking about that thrill of discovery and how hard it is to accept something that's truly completely new and that hit them out of the dark i won't say out of the blue i'll say out of the no one expected that the universe was accelerating and driven apart and soon be you know torn apart at least on cosmic time scales and so no one expected that so there's great resistance to it but the serendipitous finding ultimately proved to be one of the most important discoveries of all time and now it's guiding how a great deal of attention and funding and, and so forth is being applied in the physical and astronomical sciences. So I agree with you, you know, eureka moments can be, can be exciting, but usually it's really weird stuff that does not make sense. Those things and the taste and scientific discipline that I teach to my students hopefully will allow them to have the confidence by studying history, what these different epochs were like when someone comes upon something truly revolutionary to take advantage of that and really probe deeper. Well, you mentioned Isaac Asimov, and I just want to take a moment to say something about science fiction in mm-hmm. in its role in reality, in uh, wider society, in what we think of as the real world versus um, a pulp novel. Many, or particularly from the, the quite early days of science fiction in the 19th century, but all the way through the 20th century, so many developments, scientific and technological, found some kind of prediction in the writings of science fiction authors. Uh, it, this mirrors what I was saying earlier about, you know, everything real begins with a thought. As much as science fiction has been in the past misleading about future possibilities, you know, some wild speculation that somehow entered the public consciousness and people assumed were sort of taking on a factual dimension, you know, that, you know, day trips to the moon and domed cities <laughs> on Mars, you know, that sort of thing. As, and, and people perceive that the manned space program is kind of faltered if not failed at the same time uh in the science fiction world crossing over into the real world we have all the threat and promise of of ai now and where that all that's going to take us uh is it going to be mass unemployment is it going to free humans for for human tasks you know where all that's going to go Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I certainly influenced many of my colleagues and, and even myself. I, I, I happen to have not as much time and energy for science fiction uh, reading as as many of my colleagues have. I was influenced actually by Isaac Asimov, by Arthur C. Clarke, but not as much by, ironically, their science fiction as by their science nonfiction. 
And this, this kind of, you know, guided me the way that they looked at it. But I realized they must have been deeply influenced by their, you know, by their, uh, writings and dis, and discourse into, into the science and fictional world. And of course, we study that a great deal here at UC San Diego. And we've had a lot of great, uh, the greatest science fiction authors of all time. Kim Stanley Robinson, David Brin, uh, Greg Benford all came through here and many others. Uh, and these great, uh, writers have, have influenced me in my career to see how different aspects, not only of science fact, you know, it's hard to conceive of really much more fanciful and fantastic and fictional scenarios than the ones that we believe we are studying when we study modern cosmology, namely the multiverse, you know, parallel dimensions. <clears throat> and uh, and all sorts of wild and wondrous things. They do seem to come right out of science fiction, but they are squarely within the realm of testable, perhaps falsifiable scientific hypotheses. Now, when it comes to influence, I do think that the, a great number of my colleagues have been influenced by science fiction authors, and I think that's wonderful. I think having this, you know, when you get into the real modern CGI, I, I think that I'm a classicist, you know, I like the, <laughs> the old original, uh, you know, Asimov Clark, et cetera, and Carl Sagan, uh, I include in there as well. Um, and, you know, I think it's important that we, we realize that, that we can be influenced and inspired again. It's just another way of showing that science and art are not really separate cultures, that they share this commonality within them. And that might be sometimes performative. You know, when I'm giving a lecture in front of students, I'm performing like almost like an actor in a theater, a theatrical setting. It could be artistic when you're actually sketching out new ideas and, you know, graphically and, and really trying to portray extra dimensions and, and things that cannot be seen. Um, and then, and then of course, you know, there's not too much, uh, uh, audit, auditory, uh, you know, creativity in our field. We, we mainly try to get rid of excess noise and, and vibrations, but you get the point. The point is that there's a great deal of commonality and that we are probably losing people. I, you know, I taught a class at UC San Diego with the Pulitzer Prize winning poet. And we called this class, we called it poetry for physicists. And that was because normally, you know, if you can't uh, be expected to do well in a hard science class, but you have to take something for a requirement in order to graduate, you know, the old joke is you take, you know, poetry for or physics for poets. Um, in this case, we wanted to flip that around. What can physicists learn from the arts directly? And in our case, we taught and found a great deal of commonality between the subjects of poetry and in physics. And, you know, that would be a whole show in another sense to, to discuss what do we learn from that kind of experience with students that were entirely, uh, it turned out entirely, uh, interested in the border between, uh, between say classic literature, not fiction so much as, as, you know, science journalists. And then people that were young physicists who had always been interested in it, but have been dissuaded from learning about things because they weren't rigorous and technical. So it was very delightful to do that. Well, yeah, I mean, echoing something uh, that you said a few moments ago, people like Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov, known to most people for their science fiction writing. These were scientific thinkers. They had a great interest in all the new developments of science in their time, and they were they were thinking ahead they were speculating about what might be possible in the future turning it into some very exciting stories along the way but they were also seeding ideas i know some of these writers were definitely implanting ideas into their fiction that they thought would be achievable possibly even in their lifetime and they wanted to propagate these ideas in a you know in the popular consciousness and not just have them you know locked up in labs 
Yeah, I think that that is true. You know, that they have, there are the greatest scientists have always had a deep affinity, I think, for, for, you know, the, the cultural communication, certainly. And you look at the best scientists that we know about. <clears throat> these are people like Einstein and Feynman. Here we had Maria Mayer. These were wonderful people that loved to teach. And what is teaching if not an act of creativity, even an act of love and vulnerability? And I think the best scientists should be encouraged to do that. Unfortunately, we have no funding. We have no time. We have no courses dedicated to one of the most important aspects of what it means to be a scientist on a daily basis, which is this ability to communicate beyond the 10 people that might read your research paper. Yes, and I think if there's something that science could do better, it's communication. But as you say, there's reasons why that maybe isn't the time, the money, the resources to do that. Of course, it requires media to play their part in it as well. Um, I just think it'll be a very important part going forward of science really playing its full role in the, you know, in the human story, particularly, as I said, you know, with the challenges that we face, because uh, there's always a danger. You know, we think we've you know, come through the scientific revolution. We live in a scientific and technological age. There's no way back. But you only have to look, <laughs> at, you only have to look at some of the political developments. This, let me just put it that way to see the danger of anti-scientific sentiment creeping in to you know the minds of certain influential people and that becoming you know scientists being seen as like you know in ivory towers pursuing their little projects and what does this really mean for us when actually it's behind everything you know from your toaster through to like um <laughs> if we have a future you know on, on any other planet everything in between yeah i mean this came to a head over the summer <clears throat> when the apollo moon landing came upon its 50th anniversary and i heard you know just wild things about you know how many people believe in a flat earth how many people believe in the lunar landing being a conspiracy uh and it's actually sad to say you know for my european listeners but but it seemed like according to people that i spoke to seth shostak and other you know that it's even worse in europe that more people believe that that say you know a flat earth which now nah, i i I hope that that's not true. I do remember reading a survey and and talking about this when I was in Italy three or four years ago about a survey that found that, you know, 25% of Americans think that the sun goes around the earth. And that's just hilarious, right? And then I point, they were all laughing at the stupid Americans. But then I pointed out the European study that point that uh, seemed to suggest 33% of Europeans thought the same thing. <laughs> so it was actually a little bit worse. Um, and so... I think that's a problem of communication. Maybe that's exactly what you're hinting at. Uh, but I think, you know, it's easy to communicate, uh, you know, a, a brand new hit movie or a song or, or some pop star or whatever, because people are naturally inclined to that. If they see science as, as a drudgery, as a means to get a career in a lab or in an, as an engineer in some board, they don't, they are not going to do that. So why do they need to know about, well, why, how do we know that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around? Uh, why is that important to them, well, you know, versus something that gives them pleasure, instantaneous gratification? I think, again, you don't need to be trained in, uh, you know, classic art history and art appreciation to appreciate the Mona Lisa because it appeals to something. The beauty of it appeals. I think it could eventually be possible to have science be as appealing as well. I think it's going to take a revolution in the way that we teach science, technology, engineering, and math. And I'm hoping that could come about through this discursive, uh, curious uh, foundation that, that you know, I'm, I'm attempting to teach at least with my children. And I know that others such as Mario Livio have really popularized a way of piquing curiosity through sustained encounters with things that children are already interested in. 
Well, I can't remember who you were quoting earlier, but the the implication was that we need to be Renaissance men and women, and not you know not just overly specialised. And I think that by necessity, I think you know we're being pushed as uh, as a species in that direction. And I just hope that we you know, we've always moved two steps forward, one step back. It seems to me, but I hope that it's not two steps forward. Three steps, three back, steps back, yeah, basically, and that we can have this rediscovery of that Renaissance spirit. You know, when you think back to in, in the classical period as well, you know, when people uh, might spend half their day painting another half a day, you know, dissecting an animal, whatever it happens to be, just they're discovering, they're seeing that this learning about the world around us as a totality and that mm-hmm. we shouldn't just compartmentalize too much and we shouldn't certainly not allow one discipline to bleed into another, you know, like different colors on a, you know, in a, in a palette, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're not isolated. Sometimes when you blend these things, you get the most interesting outcomes, the most interesting discoveries and revelations. So that's just kind of my closing thought for where all this might take us. And in the role, yeah. of course, of creativity and imagination, all that is is central. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, I think to prolong that childlike curiosity and passion as long as possible and i don't see a reason not to be i mean everyone always asks me i have kids and they say you know are your kids going to be just like you an astrophysicist i say i hope only if they want to be and but you know i'm going to do my best to encourage a love and a passion and there's so many more resources than when you and i were children that it's almost you know i always say it's it's almost like child abuse if you don't buy your kid a cheap <laughs> little te- telescope that you can get online because you can see the same exact create craters on the moon moons of jupiter phases of venus that galileo saw 400 years ago even from the middle of manhattan or london or wherever uh, and that's because this little tiny telescope is basically a time machine that can transport a child's imagination through space and time in a way that nothing else. And you don't need any special, you know, just point the darn thing at the brightest things in the sky and you'll see what happens. Don't spend $10,000 on it. Get a $50 one maybe. And who knows? That kid may end up as, as I did going into astronomy because of an encounter as a 12 year old with a telescope in the moon. Okay, Brian, just before we close out for today, I'm going to get you to tell listeners about your website. We should also mention that your book that you uh, mentioned earlier, Losing the Nobel Prize, A Story of Cosmology, Ambition, and the Perils of Science's Highest Honor. That's just about to come out in paperback. Um, So, yeah, just give them that info and anything else you'd like to put out there. Yeah, so most of my what I do is is on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter. My website is briankeating.com, B-R-I-A-N-K-E-A-T-I-N-G.com. And this, uh, sometimes you'll find if you sign up for my mailing list, where I give a lot of announcements and links to talks and to the Arthur C. Clarke Center, for example, that uh, sometimes I give away meteorites and, and other goodies that I've collected in my uh, peripatetism around the planet. And uh, hopefully, if your listeners and, and, uh, and fans stay in touch, uh, they, might, they might get a chance to win one, too. Splendid. Well, once again, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure as always.